Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I wanted a career in which everything would matter. So I joined the CIA and now I help protect our families, our friends, and every fellow American. Find out how everything you do in your career can impact our nation. Visit cia.gov slash careers to learn more and apply. And now for something completely different. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Get Cocky Podcast, part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. I'm your host, Pearson Fowler, and we've got a great pod for you all today. Coming up in just a few minutes, we're going to go deep on the advanced metrics from the Alabama game with Will Helms, and we'll have the best of social media from the weekend. But first, I want to remind you to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends if you like it and you want to hear more of it. And don't forget to check out Wes Mitchell and Chris Clark's instant reaction to Saturday's game on another Carolina podcast, also part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. All right, so Saturday's game went as I expected in a lot of ways. My final score prediction last week was 49-24, to and the actual final was 47-23, so one point off the margin and three total points off. But what I didn't expect was how Carolina would exactly arrive at the result. I think I can reasonably make an argument that Carolina played the game even more evenly than that 24-point margin, although I think the margin does pretty accurately describe the disparity between these two teams. Uh, But I saw three different players and groups that exceeded my expectations and helped keep this close early, and also if a couple things that I'll get to in a minute had gone differently for Carolina, it really would have been closer than 24 points, and a lot of it would have been because of these performances. Carolina outgained Alabama by 59 yards on the ground, and Rico Dotto was the best running back in the game. He had the most yards and the most carries and the highest yards per average because that's how that math works. And the other side of that was that Carolina held Alabama to three yards a carry, 76 rushing yards on 25 attempts. Clearly, Sarkeesian and Saban were happy to air it out over and over again, and their receivers were doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. But I didn't expect Carolina to be able to reasonably make Alabama one-dimensional. A lot of those rushing attempts came after the game was sort of decided. Uh, Ryan Holinsky also threw the ball 57 times and looked not like a freshman. Carolina succeeded on offense because he was sharp and decisive, not in spite of him having you know kind of an up-and-down game. It's only his second start. It's against Bama. He's a freshman, all those things. No. Now, it wasn't a perfect game, and he turned the ball over twice, but his performance was, I think, very much at the upper end of what could reasonably have been expected of him going into his second start. So those three things exceeded my expectations. Carolina's ability to run the ball, their ability to limit Alabama's rushing attack, and Ryan Helensky's performance, which, again, while not completely unforeseeable because he did turn the ball over a couple times, was, like I said, very much on the upper end of what was a reasonable expectation. I thought the defensive line and linebacking core played well, and that sort of goes hand-in-hand with limiting Alabama's rushing attack. It was really just the secondary that was the problem area. It was a couple missed tackles. It was some poor angles taken and just giving up way too many explosive plays, and that wasn't totally unforeseen. Carolina had had those problems early in the season, so um, you were kind of expecting that. I I figured Alabama's receivers would make a lot of plays, have a lot of yards after catch, and have a couple of big touchdowns, but um, those three things that I mentioned earlier, those I did not expect and really... Gave Carolina a chance to 
keep this thing close. And I mean, it was. They covered the spread. It's 23 point margin and 25 and a half point spread. And through two and a half quarters, this thing was really within striking distance. And Alabama just ended up being the better team, which is, and that's just how this thing goes. Now, this has been talked about ad nauseum, but there were, in my opinion, three breaks in the first half that all went against Carolina. And that just can't happen when you're trying to pull an upset of this magnitude. The fake field goal that was called back for holding really felt like a death blow. It was too early in the game to actually be one, but it felt like one of those things where, you know, well, if Carolina's going to pull that and succeed, Parker White, I mean, outrunning the whole defense, that was awesome. Who knew he had the wheels? And then it gets wiped off by a penalty. That's when you say, you know, it's probably just not their day. On a day when Carolina is destined to upset Alabama, those are the kinds of things that go Carolina's way. And that's, and that's what you have to get. Those are the breaks you have to get to even come close. And even more than the football part of it and, and wiping off the early touchdown that would have given him the lead, it was just emotionally devastating for everyone in the stadium, and I imagine for the team as well, though they did bounce back, and their resilience on Saturday was something that really impressed me. And with regards to the penalty that did wipe that fake off the board, I think it was technically the right call. It looked to me in real time like it was holding. I was sitting in the south end zone with Parker running right at me, and I thought, oh, wow, that looks like a hold. Carolina got away with it, and of, of course they didn't. The flag came in late, though, and it was one of those, I mean, it really was like a teeny tiny baby ticky-tack kind of holding that happens on every single play, and if it happened in the tackle box instead of out in the open, there's no flag, but it was out in the open. It was on a touchdown scoring play on a, you know, on a trick play, so there's more attention being paid to it, and the defender really sold it, but that was really a brutal break, but it was probably technically the right call. The next two, though, are different. The next two are completely inexcusable gas by the officiating crew. The first one that I want to talk about, since I'm just going through these chronologically, is the punt down to the one for Carolina that was called back for an illegal motion and cost Carolina 33 yards of field position. And that call was purely a farce. I'll just leave it at this. Show this play side-by-side side with the next play, the next punt, the actual punt, and ask officials... Anyone you know that happens to be an official, which one of those plays was legal and which one was illegal? I've asked a bunch of people who would know what the call was, and I've been given no answers. Everyone just kind of shrugs. It's like, well, I don't, I don't really know. I didn't know if I just didn't understand the verbiage of what that rule is, the illegal motion on a punt or whatever. I know you're obviously allowed to have guys in motion on plays, hence like jet sweeps and things like that. They don't have to be set, but that was what the official said. And then it looked identical to the next punt. They just didn't flag it there. So, I mean, like I really... I have no idea. I haven't gotten an explanation. Don't expect to get one from the SEC. So find someone that you know that's an official. Do this exercise and report back to me because like, I'm just genuinely curious at this point. And to be fair, Bama may very well have scored on the next drive anyway, but it's a lot harder from the 1 to the 34. I know y'all are saying, well, North Carolina did it. Yeah, okay, but the point is it's harder to go 99 yards than it is to go 66 or whatever. So that was number 2. The last pivotal moment in the first half was the Rico touchdown that was declared not able to be overturned by review by an official on the field who was told that by an official replay in the booth, which leads me to one of two conclusions, and y'all help me out with this one too. Either number one, replay officials have become very efficient, which is a great thing, and we never need to stop a game for a review ever again because they have it right there. They can tell you definitively within a matter of seconds, which frankly is what I've been agitating for for years now, the way that soccer does goal line technology it's like, oh, was it a goal? Yes, no. Okay, cool. You don't stop play. You just like buzz it in if they got the call wrong. You should do that in football too. Every play just gets reviewed automatically. You don't need to stop the game. Clearly, we saw that on Saturday. 
if you know was Rico down was he not they knew instantaneously so no reason to stop the game no reason to review it there is nothing to see here that's one and if that's the case then we should all celebrate and I will renege on my criticism of the handling of this moment the second option is that the officials inexplicably abandoned protocol plain and simple they have painstakingly tried to implement replay to make sure they get everything right and in this instance for whatever reason I'm not a cons- well I'm not actually a conspiracy theorist I do love conspiracy theories I'm not suggesting a conspiracy theory in this instance I'm just saying they have no reason to just randomly abandon protocol but those are the only two options that I see and initially I thought it was curious the way that they called this, but also thought that Muschamp deserved some criticism for not calling a timeout for a review or just straight up throwing a challenge flag. But once I heard that he was told they wouldn't overturn it, I was even more confused. And so now I don't know, like I said, if it's number one or if it's number two or if there's a third option that I'm missing. Again, please let me know. Y'all know as much about this as I do, and I'm at a loss. Now, Alabama just straight up didn't make as many mistakes as Carolina. Plain and simple. And that's why Alabama has continued to separate itself from everyone else in college football for this entire decade plus. It's not just talent. It's coaching and preparation, not shooting yourself in the foot. And if you're listening to this and you're a Clemson fan and you're like, well, Clemson has separated. Yeah, but Clemson for like the last four years, I'm talking about Alabama year in, year out. Not only do they get the talent, but plenty of other dynasties or almost dynasties have come and gone since Alabama started winning national championships with Nick Saban. And it's and it's because they not only have as good of talent, if not better talent, than everyone else in the country, but they prepare better than everyone in the country. So Alabama, they have more penalties, but they didn't have as many impactful mistakes as Carolina. And that was the difference. Carolina is not as good as Alabama, and they made more mistakes. But all of these things that I've just mentioned could have made this game very different. And a couple of those ticky-tack calls or the you know, ball bouncing Carolina's way a couple of different times, you know, this thing would have been close. It would have really gone into the fourth quarter. Maybe Mac Jones wouldn't have gotten any action. Alabama, again, won. They, they won because they're better and because they didn't make as many mistakes. But these things that are almost out of Carolina's control in some way, I guess with the exception of the holding, is, I mean, not much you can do about that. Greendale's the way it goes. And sometimes, frankly, if you're a Carolina fan and you believe in karma or universal balance or the football gods or whatever, just be glad that the big bounces that all teams get every year weren't wasted in a game that Carolina was always going to lose. Save, you know, the lucky break or the crazy trick play touchdown for the one-score game against Missouri next week or Florida later in the season. You don't want to waste it on a game that you're already going to lose. The majority of my takeaway from the game overall was encouragement. Uh, encouraging performances from Rico, from Ryan, from Brian, from Shy, from the offensive line blocking the run, from Kinlaw, from Brian McClendon, who I thought had an excellent game plan. Wilhelms has some great numbers about what this Carolina offense looked like in this Alabama game, just in terms of where they were putting the ball, how exactly they were running their offense. And my negative takeaways aren't really new, which I don't know, maybe maybe that's worse, but it's not like all of a sudden we know that Carolina safeties are struggling or that all of a sudden Horn is the only sure thing defensive back that Carolina has. We've, we've known that. And fortunately, there's only one other team on the schedule that can exploit that part of Carolina's defense in the same way and to the extent that Alabama did. And there's a lot of time to fix problems before those games. I think even the linebackers and the defensive line play was, was generally good. It was really just the secondary and specifically the safeties. But the key now is building off of this game for those positive performances, maintaining this level of, of energy, of enthusiasm, of, of life, and of fight um, in, in these future games that Carolina is going to be favored or you know reasonably has a shot at winning beginning this weekend in Columbia, Missouri. But that's the rub. It's easier said than done, but Saturday could have been a lot worse. 
I'm hoping the advanced metrics are as favorable as the box score and as the eye test, though, and we're about to find out. So without further ado, here comes Wilhelms. All right, Wilhelms is back to break down the numbers from the South Carolina-Alabama game. Uh, Will, we'll just jump right in. This game, I thought, was entertaining and pretty well contested through two and a half quarters, and Carolina seemed to play well. Do the advanced metrics bear that out as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one thing that South Carolina did that I really don't think Alabama was ready for was how Holinsky was able to throw it across the middle of the field. Um, I mean, he, you know, obviously played really well um, through 56 pass attempts, which is um, a lot for a true freshman in his second career start, especially against uh, number two Alabama. Um, But one of the things that I think stood out to me and really played into the offensive success was the fact that um, Holinsky threw it over the middle of the field um, over and over and over again, really attacked the the linebackers. And, you know, if anybody uh, has been following Alabama football this year, they have a lot of freshman linebackers and really inexperienced guys um, playing in the middle of their due to injury. And, um, you know, they threw – with Holinsky, they threw three passes over the middle of the field against Charleston Southern and threw 32 passes over the middle of the field against Alabama. Um, and so I thought they really played well, and that um, really kind of helped South Carolina stay in it, even when the defense didn't seem to be um, playing all that well for a lot of the game. That makes a lot of sense because, as you mentioned, not just the freshman linebackers for Alabama, but that wasn't something that was on tape, uh, partly for Holinsky because there just wasn't much Holinsky tape to begin with. But even when Jake Bentley was running the offense, and this is just kind of going off of memory eye test from last year, um, and, and then the North Carolina game. But when Bentley was in there, it didn't seem like they were ever really comfortable throwing the ball over the middle, at least not as often that they, as they did against Alabama. And he, I knew they did it a lot, but even to hear you say the number 32, that still seems like a ton. Uh, so I think it's fair to say that McClendon feels a little more comfortable having that part of his offense in there with Holinsky under center. And it definitely helps with the RPO offense, too, of them being able to throw all those slant routes and um, you know kind of the deep ends and things like that um, off of the RPO. I think it's really been... Um, you know, kind of encouraging, I would say, to see for Gamecock fans. When you look at the uh, other part of the offense that was, I think, maybe surprisingly productive, Not, to, I wasn't super surprised that Helensky looked good. I was maybe surprised that he threw the ball as many times as he did. Uh, but I was really surprised if you had told me on Friday that Carolina was going to outrush Alabama and that Rico was going to go over 100 yards. I would have thought that was a, a pretty bold prediction. But Carolina looked good running the ball. They were really good up front. And then the running backs did a good job running through contact. In terms of the uh, PFF grades, was it a better performance by the offensive line, better by the running backs, or was it an all-around solid performance? Kind of like um, the rest of this year, um, the running backs really graded out well. Um, actually, Tavian Feaster graded out a little bit better than Rico Dowdle. Um, when you have just a, you know not that many touches, they combined, I think, for um, 20-something touches. Um, and there wasn't a huge um, difference in the amount of touches. There hasn't been really in any game this season. Um, so you know, not a, enough to create distance, but both of them graded out really well. Actually, um, they were the second and third um, highest graded players on the offense uh, behind Brian Edwards. Um, so both of them graded out well, and the offensive line in the run game graded out pretty well. Um, still had some issues in the passing game that I did not really see with my eyes, and so I think that actually, you know, changed the topic just a little bit, um, was more – Ryan Holinsky being able to work in pocket um, and take what would be considered quarterback pressures and um, be able to, you know, take a step or two to his left or right. Um, uh, the play that comes to mind is the last 
last throw of the game, his touchdown pass. Um, he did a really good job of just kind of stepping off to his left to create a um, a better line, uh, a better line of sight there in his uh, throw to Kyle Markway. But um, yeah, overall, um, most of the offense played really well. Um, so especially um, Dowdle, Edwards, and Polinski. Yeah, the offensive line, I guess, gave up three sacks in the game. Two of those, if I remember correctly, were in the first quarter. But I, I like the point that you made about you know Helensky's mobility in the pocket. It's kind of funny. He's he's not a traditionally mobile guy. I think he's slower in foot speed than Jake Bentley was. And Jake Bentley, while he you know had his moments of getting outside the pocket and making some plays, wasn't exactly Connor Shaw or you know Dakarian Joyner or any of those guys. But I think one thing that was cool just watching the game is you could tell that Helensky was growing more comfortable as the game progressed. There were a couple of times early when he was, was he was under pressure and he would just get the ball out quickly, whether it was throwing it away or trying to squeeze it into a window. But even by like the third and fourth quarter, to your point, he seemed a little bit more comfortable stepping up in the pocket. And I, I think that's something that, that as you're pointing out, really can, can help an offensive line that I, I don't know if like struggles is the right word because you're playing Alabama and they're, you know, one of the two best teams in the country for a reason. And they did a good job of, of pressuring with four at least uh, at least uh, according to just what I watched and what I remember um, did Alabama. But I, I thought that was a, a huge part of it, it's so funny because you think about keeping plays alive. You think about Russell Wilson scrambling outside of the pocket, but it's just stepping up, stepping to your right, stepping to your left and keeping your eyes on field and making a play. And Helensky did that several times on Saturday. Yeah, it's the subtle movements in the pocket that I was pretty impressed with. It doesn't have to be, you know, a huge, you know, sprint out to your left when the the pocket breaks down, but just being able to, you know, feel the rush and kind of make an adjustment um, inside the pocket and be able to have that extra half second to make a throw. I was really impressed with that, and Holinsky really didn't look like a freshman from that perspective. No, not at all. Uh, you mentioned Rico and Tavian were two and three on the team in terms of how they graded out. Uh, Brian Edwards was number one, which I want to ask you about more in just a second. But since we're talking about Halinski, what was his, uh, if, if you don't know the specific number, like ballpark of how he graded out in that game? Because he did have two turnovers, um, but good completion percentage, threw for a bunch of yards, did throw a couple of touchdowns. So he didn't grade out quite as well as I thought he would have. Um, keep in mind that PFF does not curve grades at all to opponents. Um, so, you know, he would have gotten the same, uh, same grade if it were against Charleston Southern, um, or North Carolina or whatever team it was. Um, uh, but he ended up grading out in the mid sixties, which is still a pretty good game. Um, he definitely was docked for, um, that interception. And also one thing I noticed was that I don't always agree with everything PFF says, and they only credited the wide receivers with two drops, which just from my vantage point, I could definitely would have probably given the wide receivers two or three more drops beyond that. Yeah, off the top of my head, I can think of two that Nick Muse dropped. I think Josh Van dropped one. Um, I don't have it right in front of me, but I, I tend to agree with you. Um, it, it feels like there were a couple opportunities for guys to make plays that didn't quite. Uh, one of the other things, I don't know if if, they're, if they give you like a specific breakdown, but I, I wonder the, the first touchdown pass that he threw to Shai Smith that was, you know, maybe not the best decision throwing into double coverage, and it looks like, the Alabama safety kind of misplayed it or was initially in the right position and then misplayed it once the ball was in the air. I, I wonder if that's a throw that maybe docked in points, even though it was a touchdown pass or ended up being neutral as a touchdown pass, but poor decision. So it ends up being kind of a net neutral. I don't know specifically, but what I do know is that um, the actually the president of college, or I guess the, the owner or guy that in charge of the overall grades in um, for PFF college uh, tweeted out that that was a good throw. So <laughs> I would assume if the the guy that was you know 
in charge of the whole thing, says it's a good throw, that he would have graded well for that. <laughs> um, but, no, that, that throw I thought was pretty impressive. And uh, just the fact that he would have thrown it. Um, Matt Hinton on Twitter, um, he's a college football writer, talked about how that's a throw that most more, quote-unquote, mature quarterbacks would not make. Um, but also at the same time, we'll look at those, uh, those more mature quarterbacks and wonder why they're not more effective. Um, and he, he was, I guess, you know, kind of thrown out there that maybe having that freshman gunslinger, I'm not afraid to throw, make this throw across the middle of the field, um, is a great mentality to have for a young quarterback. Um, and again, I was, you know, if I'm a Gamecock fan, I would want Holinsky doing that um, more than say, tucking it and running it if a guy's not wide open. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, some calculated risks. And one thing that I will say, the passes that Holinsky missed by and large on Saturday and a couple that he missed against Charleston Southern, they're mostly misses where he's still, it's the right idea. I think I think it was the same possession where they ended up scoring. Actually, it may have been a different possession. I don't remember, but there was a play when Carolina was on Alabama's side of the field that took a shot towards the end zone. Uh, Josh Van... It didn't exactly have his man beat, but that was the target. And the ball was thrown, you know, kind of where Van was the only guy that could go get it. So to go back to the shy play, it was a play that, you know, maybe the safety should have made. Maybe if you run that play 10 times, the safety makes the play four, five, six of those times. But he did actually get it over the safety. Um, he, he knew that he needed to put it long rather than putting it short. He needed to know he put it on the inside as opposed to the outside. So I guess the location, even if the exact decision wasn't, you know, textbook, what you want to see. But uh, regardless, it was really fun um, to see him go out there and, and perform basically as well as anybody could have reasonably expected him to. Uh, other guy in the offense that stood out, and you hit on it, and I'm glad that the grades reflect what, what I watched with my eyes. Brian Edwards is a top-rated offensive player, according to PFF. He played with an edge that I haven't seen in a while, and I mentioned how just energized he looked to be catching balls from Holinsky in the Charleston Southern game, and we saw more of it even when he was taking jet sweeps, and I guess maybe some of those were technically passes. I guess a couple of them were handoffs, but, I mean, he ran the ball. I mean, he looked like Tavian or Rico in terms of lowering his shoulder and just delivering a hit. So he had, um, he technically was not given any credit for any runs. Most of those were the little, you know, little toss pass uh, Mm -hmm. forward that, um, you know, has become kind of a staple of a lot of college offenses now. Um, but he tied for the team lead in most avoided tackles uh, with Rico Dowdle, who had 10 more touches than him. Um, and that's not to say anything bad about Rico Dowdle or anything the rest of the offense. Um, they, they forced 12 missed tackles, but four of those came from Brian Edwards on eight touches, um, which is just kind of showing he's not really known for having the ball in his hands. But I've been impressed with him this year um, as a punt returner, as um, – a receiver with the ball in his hands. I've, I've been really impressed by that and not just his ability to go up and get the ball. Um, but, yeah, I've got the numbers in front of me, and it's um, tied the most receptions he's ever had in a uh, two-game two span. Um, he was five yards behind his um, best two-game span in yardage. Um, and that's all in, you know, Brian Holinsky's first two starts. So it definitely seems like those two have, um, you know, have a pretty, pretty decent, um, you know, connection there um, so far through two games. No doubt about it. I, I had a chance to talk to Mo Brown on this podcast before the game on Friday, and you know this is something that I, I, I still, by and large, watch football as a casual fan. I don't pick up on a lot of the intricacies, so that's why I like talking to you know people that can give me a little bit of perspective. And when I ask Mo about you know specifically Brian's skill set and specifically Shy's skill set, the first thing he said about Brian that he cited is you know what makes him elite or what gives him elite potential is his route running, and so that was something that I was watching for specifically on Saturday. And I, I, I imagine that's something that pro football focus 
factors into their grade, you know, in some way. I don't know if they actually like grade the routes or if it's just, you know, percentages of routes that he runs that result in him being open. But he did an excellent job getting separation and using his big body because it was a lot of slants and things over the middle that he was catching. And he did a great job of just putting his body in between the ball and the defender. Um, And I don't think had any drops, none that I can remember off the top of my head. I guess if Pro Football Focus said that only two passes were dropped, I'm guessing those were the Muse drops, and so Brian didn't have one. Um, But it was it's fun to watch the guy that it feels like we haven't seen in, in over a year, just just energetic and doing all the things that he does well. Yeah, he um, he was credited with eight targets and six catches. So, um, you know, that right there was, I think, one of them off the top of my head was the deep pass that he basically beat the defender and mm-hmm. just, just overthrown a little bit. Um, and then, you know, one other one that wasn't a drop. Um, I'm trying to think of what that was, but I can't, you know, can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, but, you know, if you're catching 75% of your targets and you have – um, you know, you're catching each pass for 15 yards um, against Alabama's defense. That you know, definitely is a good game. The other side of the ball obviously wasn't as great for Carolina. Gave up over 500 yards, 47 total points, and a lot of that was yards after catch. It was something that we all talked about on, around Gamecock Central, around 107.5, where I do my local show. It was an area of uh, concern for Carolina because you're dealing with arguably the best receiving core in the country, probably the best receiving core I've ever seen ever on a college team those guys are incredible with the ball in their hands yeah um so one of the things that i really took away from this weekend is that south carolina's got about the same amount of playmakers on offense and defense you can just scheme around those playmakers on offense and you can't hide your deficiencies on defense and i think we saw that saturday um of you know the offensive line played okay um you know not bad definitely enough to help the offense move the ball but South Carolina was able to get the ball into Shai Smith's hands, was able to get the ball into Brian Edwards' hands, um, was able to get Rico Dowdle the ball in space. Um, and those three guys made up almost 70% of South Carolina's yardage. Um, and so you can get the ball to, to your playmakers on offense and kind of avoid your, uh, don't want to say weak links, but kind of your, um, you know, the guys that aren't going to be able to quite compete with Bama get, uh, play, you know, every single play. Um, and on defense, they just couldn't do that. Um, Javon Kinlaw was unblockable in the first uh, first quarter. He was credited only with uh, three hurries, but I think that's because Alabama really just started getting the ball out quicker after that. Um, they only attempted four passes further than uh, 10 yards downfield, um, which is just kind of crazy that they would do that. Um, but, you know, I mean, they've thrown a bunch of RPO slants, and there's really no chance for Kinlaw to be able to get in the backfield after the you know they, he was able to do that in the first quarter. Um, so they started double-teaming him, and they were kind of able to take him out of the game um, after he really made his presence known early. Um, a couple of the corners actually graded out well. Um, J.C. Horn did not grade out well. I thought he played okay. I thought he was hurt a little bit by um, some, you know, some bracket coverage or maybe the safety didn't make it down quick enough. Um, he was kind of left on an island or, um, you know, some of those quick throws where you really can't prevent the throw. You just have to make the tackle pretty quickly and, um, you know, trying to do that against a Jalen Waddle or trying to do that against a Jerry Judy is uh, a lot easier said than done. Uh, but South Carolina did have some really good grades. I um, mean, Kinlaw graded out well. R.J. Roderick graded out well. Jamie Robinson was excellent. Um, the problem is on defense, you know, if you've got five guys in the secondary and four of them are absolutely blanketing their receiver and there's no receiver running wide open, well, you know, that's not going to end well for the defense. And so I think right now South Carolina really is going to have to um, find ways to 
um, cover up some of their deficiencies on defense. Um, and a, a lot of that might have to come just through recruiting. Yeah, the, the hear that to hear that Horn didn't grade out very well is a little bit surprising to me. I, I guess I think about the long Devontae Smith touchdown that I guess he probably gets blamed for, but it looked like he had outside leverage. He allows Smith to release inside, and then eBay comes down, and um, it, the pass comes out quick enough that you don't expect him to exactly break it up, but d- isn't there to make the tackle. And that, that seemed to be kind of a, a theme of the night in terms of the safeties. Uh, not surprised to hear that Jamie Robinson graded out well. I think he was really good tackling in space. And Will Muschamp saying Sunday night or Saturday after the game, I can't remember that you know maybe he'll still be shuffling some pieces around in the secondary. Wouldn't be surprised to see him maybe starting at the nickel for that Missouri game and try to move R.J. Roderick back to safety and then have eBay, I guess, at the other safety spot. Um, but I guess that's the other thing I'll ask you. In terms of the safeties, between the snaps that Roderick played at safety, I know he played a lot of nickel on Saturday, uh, and eBay and Williams, how did those guys grade out? Or which one of those graded the best and which was the worst? So Roderick had the best grade. Um, and he's actually he played kind of a hybrid, almost if uh, people remember back on Steve Spurrier's defenses, the spur position that Antonio Allen used to play. Mm-hmm. Um, R.J. Roderick's been playing that a lot, uh, kind of that he's playing safety per se, but he's really within eight yards of the line of scrimmage, 80% of plays. Um, and so that leaves the free safety position, which South Carolina's been rotating guys in, trying to work with. Um, and it's just really been struggling um, this year at that position. Um a lot of it has to do with just the athleticism. They've got um, guys that just aren't quite quick enough to be able to, you mentioned the Devontae Smith touchdown earlier. Um, you know, you ideally like the safety to be able to clamp down a little bit quicker and if not make, make a play on the ball to make an immediate tackle. And yet, you know, JT eBay was so far back that he had to try to make an open tackle, a tackle in open space rather than make a tackle as soon as the ball was caught. Um, and you see a lot of plays like that. You saw the first long touchdown, I believe it was to Henry Ruggs, which, let's be fair, he's the fastest player in college football, and nobody's going to run him down. But you saw both safeties um, take very bad angles there, which you know players do against Ruggs. Um, but that really hurt them, and he did, they didn't even have a chance to make the tackle because they ran five yards behind him. Um, and so South Carolina's really trying to um, figure out that safety position. But, um, you know, Roderick's been playing almost a different safety position than uh, eBay and Williams have been playing, and um, neither of them graded out particularly well. Um, I think eBay was credited with three missed tackles out of a – the defense was credited with nine missed tackles. Um, so I believe he missed um, – you know, they gave him three missed tackles, and then um, Jemias was just was not able to clamp down on those slant routes for whatever reason, whether it's his size, um, just being kind of boxed out by some of the Alabama's bigger receivers um, or just his play recognition or whatever it was. Um, neither of those guys played particularly well Saturday. And you have to hope that the continued development of Jamie Robinson allows them more flexibility. As I mentioned, maybe to, to put him in whatever that spur role is at Antonio Allen, uh, Devontae Holloman role to, to let RJ move back, or if he's doing well there, you know, maybe even see Jamie Robinson start at the other corner, put uh, Mukwamu back at the safety to have a little bit more length or, or range back there. I don't know exactly what it is. I guess that's uh, why Will Muschamp makes millions of dollars, and hopefully he'll you know figure that out. But that was certainly that that was the, the biggest issue for me on Saturday because obviously Carolina did a, a good job in clamping down the run for Alabama, holding them to three yards a carry or just over three yards a carry, seventy six yards on twenty five carries. They also seem content to just sling the ball around for the majority 
um, of the game. I don't know how many of those rushing attempts came sort of after the game was basically decided, but e- even early in the game when they were trying to run, Carolina did a good job. I thought the linebackers uh, looked a lot better. Ernest Jones obviously got a lot of play on Twitter, you know, negative play on Twitter when he missed the tackle on Najee Harris, but I, I think by and large he had a pretty good game. TJ Brunson made a couple nice plays in space, and, and the rest of the defensive line I, I thought was good. You singled out Kinlaw, but as a whole, the front seven for Carolina I thought played pretty well. I don't know if the numbers reflect that or not. Yeah, they, they kind of reflect that. Um, Alabama did a really good job of scheming against South Carolina's defense. Um, I don't have a breakdown of how much came from Tua, and um, Mac Jones had three um, passing attempts after, like very much at the end of the game. But between the two of them, Bama had 495 yards passing, but only 99 of those came in the air. Um, so the other 396 came after the catch. Um, which, you know, sometimes is slant routes and being able to, to hit them there. But um, by and large, South Carolina played well when they could stop the big play. Um, they just really struggled to, you know, keep those three-yard passes to three-yard passes. Um, they could do it, you know, three, four times in a row, and then the fifth time they'd break a tackle and run, you know, 60 yards and score a touchdown. Um, and so that's what makes the tackling so frustrating and so difficult for a defense is by and large, South Carolina – tackled well Saturday um like I said 10 missed tackles Alabama had uh 13 so Alabama's defense missed more tackles than South Carolina's the problem is three missed tackles come on Najee Harris's long catch um you have another missed tackle that um happens on another one of those uh long passes and so at least four of the 10 tackles resulted in touchdown or missed tackles results in a touchdown and when they weren't um, missing so, tackles, I guess it was a, a matter of not even having the guys around those receivers to miss the tackle. Yeah, yeah, I think um, that was a big thing. But also, I mean, Alabama, um, one of the measures that you can look at and one that SP Plus that um, Bill Connolly of ESPN uses is marginal effectiveness and or marginal efficiency and marginal explosiveness. And in the past, South Carolina's been horrible at the efficiency side of defense and has been excellent at preventing the big play. And Saturday, you kind of see the reverse of that. Uh, they allowed on non-explosive plays just four yards play. So anything that didn't go over 15 yards averaged only four yards play, which, you know, if you're holding teams to four yards of play, um, you know, you're probably going to play well. The problem is Alabama had like 80% of their yards come on eight plays, I think, um, which you just can't have as a defense. And, you know, you could have – have success nine times out of ten um, and then fail that tenth time and it results in a touchdown. I mean, that's what happened with the Najee Harris touchdown. Is, um, that was on a fourth and two. And they had played well that drive. I think that was the second or third uh, third down that they had forced. And then they finally get the stop on third down and can't tackle Najee Harris and he goes 40-something yards for a touchdown. So let that be a lesson to people that complain whenever – defenses of whatever team they support are too concerned about giving up the big play you see how just how devastating it can be when you play defense great the whole time and then just give up a couple of big plays that can really be the difference certainly not the only difference in this game Alabama was just better across the board and uh, no shame in losing to Alabama uh well I've already kept you a lot longer than I promised I would so were there any other things any other numbers that jumped off the page that you wanted to get to before I let you go um, not that I can think of. Um, I'm just really impressed with Holinsky and ready to see um, kind of what they do this week. You have him going outside the um, hash marks last week against Charleston Southern, um, throwing almost two out of three passes um, between the hashes this week. 
Um, interested to see what Brian McClendon is doing and see how he continues to open up the playbook with Holinsky under center. Yeah, it's going to be – I mean, if Saturday was any indication, it's going to be a treat to watch this McClendon offense throughout the rest of the season because they aren't going to face many more defenses that are as stiff as Alabama. Maybe this Missouri game will be a shootout like some other games down the stretch as well, but it'll be it'll be fun to watch. Will, thank you so much. Great stuff as always. Read him on Gamecock Central. Right now he's got his five points up, and I guess at some point later this week we can expect a – uh, a similar kind of breakdown. You post those PFF things pretty regularly uh, after games, so be on the lookout for that. Give them a follow on Twitter at WHelms21. Thank you so much again, Will. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks again so much to Will. As I mentioned, go to Gamecock Central to read his five points up right now. A little bit later in the week, be sure to check back in on Gamecock Central to read his complete Pro Football Focus grade breakdown when she posts after every Carolina game. And by the way, if you're not a subscriber to Gamecock Central, you can use the exclusive podcast code GCPOD to get a month of insider access for free. So you can check out all of Will's great stats, all the things that he didn't get to mention on this podcast, even though I try to be very, very greedy with his time and get as much insight as I can out of him. But I really appreciate him coming on. Also give him a follow on Twitter at WHelms21. Before we get out of here, was not as fun a weekend on social media this weekend as it was last weekend, or maybe I just wasn't on Twitter as much. I don't know, but wanted to get to a couple things before we get out of here. Um, Not even specifically related to Carolina, but this was from Friday. After Jets starting quarterback Sam Darnold was ruled out for a couple of weeks with mono, Bill Barnwell, who's a great football writer for ESPN, also noted soccer fan and predicted Leicester would win the Premier League title a couple years ago against all odds. He did that before the season or towards the beginning of the season. He tweeted um, about Sam Darnold's mono. Had a scout tell me Adam Gase preferred Baker Mayfield's immune system to Sam Darnold's coming out of school. Uh, Well done, Bill. That's hilarious. Couple more from uh, the world of professional football. After the Saints were hosed on a scoop and score that was blown dead and then reviewed, and they decided that it actually was a fumble, and the Saints had to get the ball back all the way on the other side of the field and had the touchdown wiped out. And this was all after the horrible ending to the NFC Championship game last year, where Nikel uh, Roby Coleman was not called for a pass interference. Point is, the Saints don't like officials very much right now. And somebody, I wish I could give him credit, but this is just my roommate that told me this. Somebody on the main board on Rivals. Uh, had a post that said that the Saints are going to about to have a new bounty gate, but instead of hurting players, it was going to be officials. So shout out to whoever said that. I wish I could give you credit. Uh, finally, uh, all again from the world of professional football, Kevin Clark from The Ringer after an exciting ending to an AFC South matchup between the Texans and the Jags in which the Jags tried to go for two to win it at the death, end up losing by one. Um, so making fun of the Jags, but also making fun of the Texans for making a whole bunch of crazy trades right before the beginning of the season. Says Bill O'Brien, that's the Texans coach, all class, jogs to midfield and gives the Jags a 2022 first round pick because of their effort. Kevin Clark, thank you so much for the content. Uh, sorry, it was all pro football. Y'all need to do better about tweeting at college football. Or maybe I just need to do better at finding them on Twitter. Regardless, we'll try to do better next Monday. I will be back on Wednesday with Wes and Chris for another Carolina podcast and right back here on the Get Cocky podcast on Friday. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, share it with your friends if you liked it, and we will talk to you next time. Wendy's is giving you a chance to win cash. Head to a participating Wendy's, snap a pic when you try the new homestyle French toast sticks, and post it on social using the hashtag Wendy's French Toast Stick Sweeps or log on to Wendy's French Toast Stick Sweeps.com. 
Wendy's new homestyle French toast sticks are crispy on the outside, fluffy on the inside. They're so good, they're the best thing to ever happen to breakfast. No purchase necessary. See rules at Wendy's French toast stick sweeps.com. Sweepstakes end September 11th, 2022. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.